0: Bible's there. Dive right in. Jeremiah chapter 31. This is another Advent prophecy and it's right in a very long and large book of the Old Testament. And so Jeremiah chapter 31 is where we are. And you know, as I have been going through these Advent prophecies, we've so far covered Isaiah, then we covered Micah, and now we're going into Jeremiah, and next week is Hosea, I've realized a couple of things. Number one, it's getting us, you know, sort of a head of steam going into Christmas as we think about the birth of Christ, Advent, talking about the coming of the Lord, and we're, we're sort of retrospective. Looking back to what it felt like to anticipate the messiah 's birth and all of that that 's good uh, number two this is a lead in i think a perfect lead in to where we 're going in january in january i 'm going to be preaching Ezra, and then that will, what will follow is nehemiah so ezra and nehemiah a, a good portion of the Old Testament that I've never studied in detail whatsoever. So I'm really looking forward to diving in. But where that picks up is right where these prophecies leave us, because the, hist- the historical time period, the context for when these prophecies were given were right before Babylonian captivity, 70 years where the nation of Israel was punished. And then there's a prophecy in Jeremiah for the deliverance of the Jews from Babylonian captivity at the end of 70 years. And that's right where Ezra picks up. And so this is good foundation work for that coming series. It's like, how do you get pumped up to preach Jeremiah? This is how you do it. Now the third way, and this is the, uh, this is the kicker for why I think I'm here this morning. I'm here to preach the gospel from Isaiah. So this is really four gospel messages, one this morning and one next week. Because it's time to re-engage with the gospel. And in Jeremiah 31 is one of the most compelling and powerful gospel paragraphs that we have in all of the Bible. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. We're looking at Advent prophecies and what the gospel gives us is hope to a hopeless world. And uh, you have a world that's filled with people on a scale of hopelessness. But really there is hope and it's found in Christ alone and we want to talk about that. You know, I, I was reflecting on the idea of hope and Jeremiah 30-33 through 33 are really the sunshine chapters of hope in the midst of 53 chapters where the majority of them, all of the other 50 chapters really are pretty strong judgment and God's justice speeches. And so we're going to look at some hope this morning. And in Proverbs 13, 12, it says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. So I don't know if any of you are feeling heart sick this morning and needing a shot in the arm for hope. I know that I regularly do. But you know what? Let me just say say it this way. Our world needs hope. And there is sort of a, a scale of hopelessness where some people are sitting on the floor wondering what to do next... And then some people are just saying, well, I'm just depressed, or I'm mildly depressed, or I'm all the way depressed. But really, what we're talking about is whether someone has hope. Whether someone has hope. Now, I just to sort of lighten the mood just for a second, I was reading about someone um, in World magazine. How many of you subscribe to World? Some of you. It's a really good magazine to subscribe to. It's a good world, Christian worldview magazine, but it's also got some very funny um, anecdotes in it. And I was reading one of those about a guy that you might roll your eyes and say, man, that guy is hopeless. I mean, this guy, for instance, he was 20, he's 21, and he was reported to take a dare from three friends, a bet for 100 bucks to see if he could, in a park um, in Viejo, California, go sit inside the baby swing. And this guy takes the bet and decides to try it and ends up lathering himself up with some dish soap and gets into the baby swing. Now, I don't know if it was premeditated or not, but his friends, what are you going to do? You're standing there, he's in the baby swing, he can't get out. It's evening time, it's in Viejo, California. Well, they leave, right? And so they run off and there he is. And this guy was feeling pretty hopeless, right? Well, as the story picks up, his friends leave. Nine hours later at 6 a.m., a park groundskeeper heard screams, like a little girl, now I added that part, screams for help, and, called, and, and he called the police, which was smart, and they called the fire department, and had an ambulance transport the man to the hospital, body still wedged in the swing, of course. I mean, that's got to be a funny scene as he walks in, you know. The doctor used a cast cutter, to remove the swing from the bruised body of the man whom authorities did not identify. That's grace and hope. Anyway, so anyway, you've got people who are hopeless, but then there's the real sense of hopelessness that's on the heart level where the only remedy of hope is found in the gospel. There are people who have lost loved ones, people who have suffered difficult times, um, uh, mothers whose hearts... Paying for their wayward children or children perhaps who have died in infancy, infancy, things that have happened that are catastrophic, where you're just, again, on the ground saying, Lord, what is the answer to my dilemma? It's the psalmist for half of the Psalms that says, Where are you, God? I need hope. People who are bound up, I mean, you might be sitting there bound up in guilt with an addiction that you're saying, I can't kick. The habit It's something that's dominating my soul. It's draining the life out of me. And I need rescue. I need deliverance. I need hope. And so we have hope found in a very dire situation in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. If you'll turn there. I'm going to read Jeremiah 31, verse 15. This is where we have an advent prophecy. It says, Thus says the Lord... A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now, this is a scene in Jeremiah which Matthew in the Gospels links up. This actual verse ...with what's happening in Bethlehem... hundreds and hundreds of years later. Basically, this verse and Matthew chapter 2... ...tie together in this way. Matthew, seeing how bad it was... ...when Herod, you know the story... ...when Herod wanted to find the Messiah... ...because he was threatened by Messiah... ...he didn't want to be trumped by Messiah... ...or this supposed Messiah... And so he wanted to strike and go after him. And so he consulted the sorcerers or the magi or, or the people who would have knowledge of such things and found that Bethlehem would be the place where this Messiah would be born. He sent the wise men to sort of stage a fake honoring welcoming committee service with gold, frankincense and myrrh. They were spoken to by the Lord in a dream. They were able to discern the star over Bethlehem to tie together the prophecy. And in a dream, they were told to not tell Herod where he was. And the Lord also spoke to Joseph and Mary and sent the Messiah to Egypt. You know the story. Herod, though, feeling... Tricked, And we're going to look at the passage in detail later on. But feeling tricked, called for a two-year-old and below killing of all the boys in Bethlehem. Slay them all. Now Bethlehem's only three to six to nine hundred people, so you know when you think of this sort of catastrophic event, it was it was intimate, right? You've you've got an intimate slaying in a little town. Now it was an expansive slaying, but and covered um, a wider scale than that. But but you're talking about very acute. Suffering in Bethlehem, very acute weeping in Bethlehem. I have a two year old, okay? I can empathize a little bit with the thought of my child dying right now or being taken from me and being killed horrible circumstance, a horrible situation. One that Matthew said, how can I find verse to describe the horror of this event, the hopelessness of the, this event? How, where can I go? Well, he reaches back to Jeremiah and he reaches back to verse 15 of 31, chapter 31, verse 15, to try to give verse an expression to the hopelessness and difficulty that was going on. The phrase, Verse 15, Jeremiah 31, she refuses to be comforted, is the degree of hopelessness. It's a person who's there who's saying, listen, I I know you're coming to visit me right now. I know you're coming to to say something when you don't know what to say. And I'm struggling to the point where I'm now, I'm needing to put a barrier up. I, I have to protect myself and I'm refusing to be comforted right now. It's hope that is deferred, and my heart is sick. That's what we have here in this text. How hopeless was it? I think we need to build the scene for how hopeless it was in Jeremiah. And then we'll bridge over to Matthew 2, and then we'll come back to the solution in Jeremiah. How hopeless was it? How bad was it? Jeremiah's message of hope begins with hopelessness to the point of being refused for comfort. It's in Ramah at this time. Ramah is five miles north of Jerusalem. We're in the southern kingdom. This is a hundred years past Isaiah's prophecy time. This is Jeremiah. He's on the scene. Things didn't get a lot better from the day, the days of Isaiah. You had Assyrian sort of um, the Lord's judgment coming on the scene, and the Lord is judging Judah, the southern kingdom, through Warfare attacks through invaders. That's how he's trying to wake his people up. And these people were in sin. The scene here in verse 15, just to start with the immediate context, is in Ramah, which is, again, five miles north of Jerusalem. And this is the place where the, exi- the, the exiles, the people are being gathered up in this little area to be deported to Babylonian captivity as a judgment of God on an unrepentant people. That's Ramai. I want to make that clear to you. Jeremiah was there. If you turn over to Jeremiah chapter 40. Jeremiah chapter 40, it says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuchadnezzar, I knew I was going to mess that up, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah when he took him bound in chains along with all the captives of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon. And so you had Isaiah 100 years earlier, and now it's come to the point where Judah would not repent, Assyria had come down and threatened Jerusalem. The Lord stepped in with a death angel back in Isaiah's time. A hundred years later, now you have the great white shark, bigger fish in the sea, Babylon, that's oversweeping the Assyrians, kind of taking them out, has taken the northern kingdom in captivity and now is coming down to the southern kingdom and has gathered up these exiles like a concentration camp. You're all ready to be taken away to another land. That's the desperateness of this situation. That's the feel of hopelessness in this situation. Why were they being judged? Well, just a few ideas. First of all, it's, a, it's nothing new under the sun. It's the sins of idolatry and immorality, sexual immorality. It's, it's that. They just go hand in hand. You say, I can't I can't resonate with idolatry. I've never bowed down to an idol. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, let's just... Hold on a second, perhaps you have. Let's see, have you ever wanted something that you're not getting and you feel bad about that and you're coveting it and you want it so bad that you're sinning to get it, you're lusting for it? That's idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry, says Paul in Ephesians. It is synonymous with covetousness. It's wanting something that you're so desperate for that you're willing to sin to get it. It's just in the Old Testament system there were false gods where people would set up with wood or stone carvings and expression, man-made expressions of what they really wanted so bad. Recently we talked about why did the children of Israel when they were wandering in the wilderness make a golden calf? It's not a very strong, formidable-looking animal. It's a golden calf. Why? Well, because it represented hope for steak and milkshakes, right? You know, I want food so desperately that I'm willing to create something. I'm, I'm willing to create a facade, right? Have you ever done that in your mind? If you create a facade of a world that you never were able to reach, something you wish you had or something you want so desperately that you're reaching for it in your heart and it's taking your eyes off God and it's leading you down a path of covetousness and idolatry and then what happens is you move from the facade or the, you know, the, the mirage that you're reaching for to actually violating in sin with action God's law. Like, for instance, you say, I want to forsake my marriage, I want to forsake my family, and I want to you know, sin with that person over there. It's where the idolatry moves to action. Well, that's, these are the sins, right? Does this sound familiar? I mean, this is Old Testament, you know, script here. And it applies so relevantly to our society, our culture, our church, and perhaps your own life, even where you're sitting today. Right? It sounds very familiar. Let's look at a couple passages. Jeremiah 1, verse 16. Look back there. Says, I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. So turning away from God. They have made offerings to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. Again, it's, you know, it's, it's. Deeper than just, you know, making a casserole in your kitchen, and I've made this and I love it so much that now I'm going to put it on the table and bow down and worship my creation. It's deeper than that. This is forsaking the Lord um, for something that you so desperately wants, want that it that it replaces your personal worship with God. Chapter 2, verse 5 Thus says the Lord. What, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? This is the Lord speaking. Why did you go far from me? And went after worthlessness and became worthless. It's the idea of people, they've given their soul in worship, but not to God. And they've become as if they are worthless. They're drained in their sin. And then, 2 verse 20, pick up, actually, pick up uh, to, verse 13. Verse thirteen: For my people have committed two evils. Look at the two evils Jeremiah describes here. They have forsaken me, and uh, for, forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's a great and sobering and sad picture of uh, the state of unspirituality or sinfulness that uh, that Judah found itself in. God is saying, look, I am the living water. I'm the source of satisfaction. And you could have had me, but you forsook me. That's your first evil. You turned from the one true source of satisfaction and tried to create your own version of satisfaction. How? You hewed out cisterns. You created these, these bowls, these massive bowls in the rock that would be rain catch, you know, their rain catch system a reservoir for when it would rain so you could have something to drink. You've hewed these out, but they're cracked. And so when the water comes that can refresh your body, it's not going to hold up. It's going to just drain through the cracks. Think about that. This idea that you say, look, you know, I could be satisfied in Jesus, in the body of Christ. I could have holy relationships. I could have the safe haven of Of God's refuge and the means of grace. I I could be satisfied in the word. I could listen to preaching online. I I can make these choices or I can just forsake that satisfaction in Christ and try to find satisfaction my own way, creating my own source of satisfaction. But in the end, the rain doesn't hold up. It's, It's cracked. And so when you try to drink there it's cracked it's that the tank is septic with the water that remains because it's not pure it's not protected it's a it's a cistern that's cracked and broken and will hold no water look at verse 23 of chapter 2 how can you say i am not unclean god's speaking for them how can you say you're not unclean i have not gone after the bales look at your way in the valley know what you have done a restless young camel running here and there a wild donkey used to used to the wilderness in her heat sniffing the wind in other words you're in heat you're 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 striving after the world you're it says in verse verse 20 under every green tree you bow down like a whore this is this is a vile situation it's where you, you dupe yourself in your own spirituality. Look at verse 27. He's, the Lord's being sarcastic with them, saying, You say to a tree, You are my father. And to a stone, You gave me birth, for they have turned their back to me and, and not their face. This is verse 28. But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. And look, you're... You're all messed up. You're all turned around and the only way the Lord was going to get their attention was to punish them and to literally take them out of their land and displace them. It's like the nation of Judah was under church discipline. You're going to be taken out of the blessing and protection of being in God's safe haven and it's going to be unsafe for a while so that you will Repent. Turn back to Jeremiah thirty one. Ramah. This is again the place of exile. They're ready to be deported and they're and they're crying. Now what is what is the weeping over? It could be that the Babylonians, as they came in, that they were actually slaying children and and causing, you know, harm to kids in this time. And that, that could be part of this, but really this is a metaphor for how bad it was that look. The children of Israel are like these young children who are being slain where a mother is crying over them. In other words, it's such a grievous time. It's as if you're a mom crying over a lost child. And the reason I know that is because there's a promise in verses 16 and 17. If you look at 17... There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to your own country. So he's talking in terms of the whole nation and that Rachel, that Rachel is weeping over her children. Who's Rachel here? Rachel just represents, represents, it's a poetic image of the Rachel from a thousand years ago. Rachel, you, you remember the story of Rachel in Genesis chapter 30? Kind of an interesting story where Jacob is coming Um, And he is looking to marry a woman, and the Lord's providing that woman, and he sees Rachel, he loves her, he's struck by her beauty. The second option is Leah, and he doesn't want to marry her. And then you have Laban, and Laban pulls a fast one on Jacob. Does any of this story, you know, does this strike home? Do you remember this? If you work for seven years, you can marry Rachel. He works for seven years, and then he, there's a bait and switch, and all of a sudden he's, he's um, married to Leah. And then he wants Rachel so much that Laban says, well, work seven more years, and then two for the price of one. And so there, there you have a situation where what he wants to, in Genesis 30, is he wants to propagate his lineage and what happens is is in Genesis 30 verse 1 you find Rachel weeping because she's unable to conceive. Now this this is something that strikes on two levels. One it strikes on in in that Old Testament economy and system, if you are a woman in that situation where you're trying to propagate your line for the glory of God, your lineage, your heritage, and it's all tied together with your name and, and God's lines that are going out as his people, if you can't be part of that, there's some shame attached to that. Uh, actually, in Genesis 30, she's saying, you know, that she just, to Jacob, she's kind of confronting him, saying, give me a child or I should just die. Give me children or I shall die, she says. Very strong language. And then we know in verse, verses 23 and then um, 24, or 22 and 23, that she actually conceived and the Lord opened her womb. And so the Lord did bless Rachel, but at this point where Jeremiah is pointing out Rachel's grief, he's hearkening back to how desperate she was that she was unable to have a child. and was not really in a place to be comforted. Let me say this. I said it strikes on two levels. One, it strikes on that level of, of shame for Rachel in that system. I think it was self-imposed shame on her part, but on another level. Uh, it strikes on the level of a desire to have a child, and it's not happening. And i got to say this. I know that many women struggle with not being able to have children, and that can be very, very difficult and heartrending. And sometimes you have, you know, one or two children and you want more and it's, and it's just not happening. And that, that's a very, very difficult thing to wrestle through. It's hope being deferred that can make your heart sick. This is, a, this is an interesting level of hopelessness, though, because it's a picture of babies being taken from you where there's no comfort. And it ties together with the hopelessness in Bethlehem. And i got to turn us there before I give the good news. Turn over to Matthew chapter 2. We've already sort of given a little bit of a survey to the story of Herod, where he's saying, I I want you to destroy the children. Because if you're not going to show me the Messiah... Then I want all the children to be killed. Look at verse 16 of chapter 2. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he, that had, that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then it goes on to the prophecy. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice Was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. How was this prophecy fulfilled? Well, let me just clarify this. In Jeremiah, when he wrote about Rachel weeping for her children, He was talking about Babylonian captivity. He was talking about that moment. There was nothing in the mind of the prophet of Jeremiah that was looking explicitly for the Messiah. But when Matthew saw the situation and and was defining the grief and suffering that was happening in Bethlehem, he tied the grief of Jeremiah 31 forward to what was happening in Bethlehem. And at that point, it became prophets, prophecy under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Matthew did it. Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as that writer made that a fulfillment of prophecy because it was the same situation. It was the same scene of hopelessness and desperation. You know how bad was it in Bethlehem? Let me just say this. I, you know, I, just thinking again about the fact that I've got a two year old. What would it be like? You know, what what about in Africa when there's a racial cleansing or there are things that are, you know, horrible effects of the fall where you have, you know, whole cultures wiped out in genocide. That's happening in real time today. It's massive cruelty. You know, look at the the Sweeping, you know, sin of abortion that's going on in our culture. But I want to talk even on um, a more personal level. I know that people actually, you know, they conceive and you lose a child and you have that sense of hopelessness in your heart, um, in your life that doesn't seem to have a remedy for it. But you know what? There is hope in Scripture. Even as as bad as it was in Bethlehem and as bad as it was Back in the days of Jeremiah, there is hope. And I want to just sort of take a sidebar real quickly about what happens to babies when they die. Is there hope for them? I believe there is. I believe that when a baby dies, they're instantly in heaven, instantly with the Lord. That's what I see in Scripture, and I think that the Bible is set up for us to make a strong inference and infer from Scripture that babies are in Heaven, Those that are just newly conceived babies in the womb and those that die in infancy. You have sudden infant death syndrome. You have these scenarios where, where it's a child that never had a choice even to make a decision spiritually in the first place. And I think the Bible gives us strong evidence that they are in heaven. So there is hope on that level. In the Old Testament, when babies were sacrificed to the God called Molech, Um, God called those babies, my children. David in 2 Samuel chapter 12, you might turn back to there. David is grieving over the child that he conceived with Bathsheba that was sick. And in chapter 12, it says that the men um, who were tending to King David in that time when David was fasting and praying for the recovery of his child, they were afraid to even talk to him and deal with him because they didn't want the, the king to become furious. And then the servants found out that the baby had died. The child is dead, verse 19, and they were afraid to tell him. And finally they told him, and they were surprised in verse 20, that David anointed his head, washed his face. He went into the house, and and he worshipped the Lord, and he ate food. The, the servants were confused, but here's David's response in verse 22 said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. In other words, David's mind was recalibrated. Once the child died, he realized by faith that he could let the child go be with God. And the idea is him saying, look, now my mind is thinking future. It's like when you're bedside with someone who's dying in the hospital and you're praying for their recovery. There's everything right about that praying for miraculous healing Asking and begging the Lord for a recovery, for a miracle. But once that person goes to be with the Lord, your, your mindset changes and you become happy for them to be free from the ailments of this world delivered safe into the arms of Jesus. It's the same mindset with babies who die in infancy, infant mortality. It could be, it's documented that somewhere between 4 to 8 million children a year die in infant mortality That could be a very, very low number compared to how many babies actually go and, and die in third world countries due to uh, you know, lesser medical care or whatever. There are a lot of eternal souls that are going into eternity every single day, every single year. Millions upon millions upon millions. And the, the question is, where do these babies go? And I think that when Jesus, this is an expression of this, brought children onto his lap, and he laid his hands on those children and said, I'm blessing you, and such as these belongs the kingdom of heaven. I think there's a symbol of grace there where Jesus is saying, look, we're all affected by the fall, but there's a special sense of grace and mercy on children who've not even yet been able to volitionally sin. James 4.17, and I know there's a, bit, a debate with all of this, but I'm just giving what I believe from Scripture. James 4.17 A person who knows the right thing to do and yet fails to do it, to him it is sin. It's a principle of of choice where you choose to sin. You choose to rebel against God in this life. And that's what puts you in eternal condemnation. It's a choice. Revelation chapter 20 verse 12. The great white throne judgment is where the Lord opens up the books and he says this. I will judge you according to your what? Your deeds. Your deeds. What you do. And that's where judgment is laid. There's hope. There's hope in the resurrection. And you know what? There's, there's, there's hope that's even found back in Jeremiah. And it's a superficial hope first. Go back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31. The superficial hope is at the end of Babylonian captivity, the people of Israel will be brought back Uh, into the land. That's verse 20. Is Ephraim my dear son? This is the Lord wandering out loud saying, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? As For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. I mean, there's hope in that. There's hope in kind of that physical restoration back to the land. But I want to take us to the end of of the chapter, to verse 31, where there's the deepest level of hope. The deepest level of hope for you who may be sitting there feeling hopeless. And that's found in the gospel. The gospel is the ground for hope for you and me. Even the idea of being reunited with loved ones in eternity... That's huge, and that's comforting. It's comforting to think you might meet the child that you lost in infancy. But the ground for that kind of hope starts with your relationship with Christ that comes in the gospel. That's where there's hope. And there's probably no clearer, stronger gospel paragraph comparatively in scripture than this one. That talks about what's really happening when when you get saved. Let's look at this. All right, first of all, just to catch the outline up: hopeless to the point of refusing comfort. It was hopelessness in Ramah, hopelessness in Bethlehem, but then hopeful in the promises of God. This is Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one. First of all, remembering God's faithfulness. Look at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like a covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Let's stop there. First of all, he's saying, look. There's something coming that's deeper than even the restoration of the land. There's something that's coming at the deepest level into the heart of people who are believers, and that is the new covenant. The old covenant was the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, and as it was further explained in the first five books of the Bible. That's the Mosaic covenant. That's the Deuteronomy 6 Shema passage. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That that sort of explains the Ten Commandments. Live this out. Live out the commentary of of these laws in the land. And that was the first covenant or the first agreement that God had with his children after he delivered them out of Egypt and put them in the Promised Land. That's the Mosaic Covenant. And he said, look, they broke it. You broke it. And in one sense, if you try to obey, in a very real sense, if you try to obey the law externally, just as a law keeper, you're always going to fall. You're always going to break the law. You're never going to be able to put yourself into a position of grace through your performance. Do you understand that in your own life? That's what That was the lesson of the old covenant, that you really couldn't keep the law except By faith. And that's why the nation. Hewed for them broken cisterns. And went into idolatries. And went into wrong ways and immoralities. Because they tried to obey the law externally. And God comes in with his grace. And says listen. Okay lesson. You you needed to learn that lesson. Now a new covenant is coming. A new commitment. That's going to go right into your hearts. He explains it here. Look at verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He moves from saying, look, remember my faithfulness. I gave you the Mosaic Covenant. I gave you the law of God when I rescued you from Egypt. And now believe in God's gospel. The gospel is that the law of God goes into your heart. Do you remember when that happened to you? Let's just have a conversation for a minute. If you haven't had this happen to you, then you're not a believer. You're not a Christian yet. To be a Christian is to move from, hey, I have to obey the law of God because my parents told me to do this. Church tells me to do this. Hey, I want to be a good person, so I want to go to church and I want to hear how to live. Or I want to go to church and have my kids go to church so their lives will be protected and reformed from evil. Um, if that's sort of your system, that's, that's not Christianity. You should have a point in time, a season in life that you can kind of look back to, or even a self-analysis today where you're saying, you know what, yeah, the law has been written on my heart. I've moved from having to do things to wanting to do things. As one person put it, you move from the have-tos to the want-tos. It's from the duty to desire, the obligation to worship. It's where God softens your heart. Old things pass away, everything becomes new. You're regenerated, you're born again. And that's where the words of God are in your meditations, where the, the promises of Scripture are your delight and they're your handholds as you climb through the mountain of your experience. I mean it's promises, passages, reassurances from Scripture. You know the right thing to do because God is speaking to you on a heart level, because He is your father and you have a relationship with Him, right? You know you're a son of God and you cry out to God, not saying, Okay, I, I need to to learn a curriculum here to reform my life. No. My heart is softened and I know God personally and he transforms me from day to day and I want to learn truth from him because it's part of a love letter to my heart. In Romans chapter 2, it talks about how the Gentiles were brought in to the scene the jews were given the oracles of god they were given the promises of god they heard the prophets of god but god also was widening the new covenant this relationship with the gentiles that's the church the jew and gentile become one man and it talks about in romans 2 verse 15 how everybody has a conscience and they have a sense of right and wrong where they're born that way and the gospel just informs that with the word of god that's conversion that's conversion The whole argument of Romans chapter 11 is that, look, you as the church should be especially grateful to be part of this program because there was a vine that was already growing, and that was the Jews. That's the Israelites. And the wild vine has been grafted into the vine. You've been grafted into this program as the Gentiles. And I believe it was always part of God's program to go that way, but there's a gratitude and an an openness to persevering and, and staying the course for God because God has transformed your life in this way. Just like He did for the remnant, for the believing Jews, He's also done it for His church. That's why Paul can say in Colossians 3, keep seeking the things above. And in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And when the word is imprinting in your mind and, and you have it in your heart and you're clinging to promises... That's when your spiritual life is taking off and you're growing in grace and you know the right thing to do. And it's not just something that's codified for you to do. It's something that your heart is is compelled to do. You're compelled to go in the right direction. You're compelled to lean forward to love the Lord. That's why spiritual life is defined in Colossians three sixteen and following, and Ephesians 5 as singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your, what, hearts. Christianity is a heart religion. Romans chapter 5 says that the love of Christ has been shed abroad in our hearts. Ezekiel chapter 36 says that when you're saved, this is another Old Testament prophecy uh, written a long time ago ago okay a long time ago and it's where God takes out the heart of stone and he replaces it with a soft heart of flesh you're softened when you're saved on the heart level and that's the new covenant covenant means commitment commitment let me take you a little further here a little farther Verse 34, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Basically, Jeremiah, he isn't undoing the teaching ministry of this time or in the church. I mean, there is still instruction that goes on, there's gifted teachers in the body of Christ. I hope that there are still teachers so that I have a job. But I will say this. What Jeremiah is saying is, is that it's not some unclear thing that needs to be sort of taught to you when you become a believer. When you become a believer, the gospel is clear. And it comes through teaching and comes through learning and, and you're made a disciple and, you know, somebody's teaching you that. But, but once... The Spirit of God is opening your heart. You catch on yourself and you know the truth in your own way by in your own reading, in your own prayer life, in your own personal clarification that happens in your thinking. It's not something that's unclear. It's something that's very clear. It's not something where you are now dependent on a neighbor to explain it to you. You get it because God made you get it with his own truth and the Holy Spirit. That's what there is what jeremiah is talking about that's what the lord is speaking through jeremiah to say and this is what you know look at this it's from the least to the greatest every everybody on the social scale and spectrum can be a believer and he says for the end of verse 34 for i will forgive their iniquity and i will remember their sin no more do you have that promise that's the promise of the gospel that's the truth that's in the heart of every believer, that's the truth that you have access to where you're going, listen, I've messed up my life. I've done these things. I feel hopeless about my addictions. I feel hopeless about my life. Well, guess what? You have a relationship with God where you repent and you believe and you acknowledge, Lord, you've forgiven me and you remember my sins no more. What's this look like in day to day? Let me let me just hit you with a couple applications. Number one, number one, hopeless is and you know you can put quotes around hopeless. Hopeless is not where the Lord wants you to stay spiritually. Now you could also change the word out hopeless for depressed. Depression, spiritual depression is real. Um, you know, there's debates in terms of where spiritual depression stops and physical depression starts. Not getting into that debate, but the point is, in the Bible, you have a psalmist who was depressed for half of his psalms. You have um, Paul, who in Second Corinthians confesses to being depressed. Depression is real. It's life-altering. It's something that God sometimes calls us to persevere through. However, I believe, based on the promises of Scripture and how the Bible defines Christian growth, that we're not supposed to stay there. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Proverbs 13, 12, but look at this. But a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. A tree of life. We're supposed to drink from the well that never runs dry. We don't live in the hewn cistern mode, the cracked foundation mode. Eventually, we have to crawl out of that by grace and say, Lord, you are the only being who can satisfy my needs, and you've promised to do that. And so I rely on you, and, and the Lord will bring you out of depression. That's why the psalmist says he is the lifter of your head, right? All right, number two. Hope rises out of despair when your vision of God enlarges. When your vision of God enlarges. I was told this, and you've heard me use this analogy before, but it's the idea that life sometimes overwhelms us, maybe on lesser degrees than the you know, weeping in Ramah. But when life is overwhelming, it's like taking a penny up to your eye like this. That penny, when it's close to your eye, looks pretty big pretty insurmountable, pretty formidable. You can't, it's just, it's taking over all of my vision. But when you take that penny and you take it away from your eye and you put it on the desk and stand back and look at it in the context of a wider context, all of a sudden the penny looks smaller and smaller and smaller. Coming out of hopelessness is being able to say, God, you are bigger than my problems. As your vision of God enlarges, the problems can be put in perspective. Even the worst, most difficult, egregious problems can be overwhelmed by God's bigness. But you've got to learn who you're talking to and talking about. remember in God's attributes, He's holy, faithful, sovereign, good, almighty, powerful, merciful. He's the judge. He's the Lord of the universe. He's in control of it all. He's the Alpha. He's the Omega. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's infinite and eternal. And He's your Heavenly Father. He's your rock. He's your fortress. He's your high tower. He's your deliverer. I mean, learning these attributes, these descriptions of God, He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the giver of life. He's the living waters we've talked about. He's the light of the world. I mentioned this. He's the eternal I Am. He's unchangeable. He's immutable. He's the deliverer who will deliver you from your trials. Meditating upon the bigness of God helps put the trial on the timeline of what he's doing in your lifetime and then for all of eternity. Very important to be able to do that. Remember how God has always taken care of you. That's another way to sort of... Crawl out of hopelessness. Lord, you've been faithful here, 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 and here. I don't see it right now. I don't, I don't understand how you're being faithful to me right now. I don't get it. It doesn't feel like you're being faithful to me right now. But I can't deny the fact that you were faithful here, 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 and here. Very important spiritual discipline. That's why we're called to remember as a spiritual discipline. That's why we take communion. We remember the gospel. And then that brings us to my sub-point three. Remember the gospel. Put yourself in the gospel. I, was, I died with Christ. I was buried with Him. I rose with Him. I'm seated on the right hand of the Father. I am in Christ and He is in me and has given me hope. Rehearsing the gospel personally in your life is a way to gain hope. Right? Number three. It's very important. Storing up Bible promises is the only way you'll have access to them when life comes crashing down. It's like this it's like storing stuff up in your backpack before you go on a hike in Alaska. You've got to have equipment. It's the old principle that I've heard and I'm starting to really take seriously. I think about this stuff. You know, what happens when I roll the truck in the ditch? You know, what happens when I slide off this way? What happens when this happens or that? You know, will I be equipped for that moment? You know, and you think in terms of, well, I'm going to be. It's going to be, you know, two degrees outside, and I'm going to have kids, and yet you, you've got to think that way and prepare. It's the same thing for us spiritually. If you don't have promises stored in your backpack, you're going to be very vulnerable when life comes crashing down. People say, you know, think this way. Hey, hmm. Do I need an underlayer today? The answer is yes. I mean, if you think that way in ask, if you're asking the question, the answer is yes, right? I wonder if I need wool socks. Yes, you need wool socks. You know, I mean, that, that's how it is. And spiritually, as a Christian, it's the same thing. Do I need to learn these promises? Yes. Do you need to maybe write out Jeremiah 31 through 34 in a note card and meditate on that? Put it in your heart? Yes. You know, do you need to learn greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world? First John 4, 4, yes. My God shall supply all of my needs according to His riches and glory. Yes, do I need to meditate on Matthew chapter six? Yes, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Yes, you need to know Philippians one six: He who begin a good work, and you will be faithful to complete it till the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. You got to know that Proverbs three five and six: Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. All thy ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your path. These are. How did I, I I don't do memory coursework, okay, I enjoy memory coursework, I I like the flip card system and and the Awana program, I enjoy that. But really, the way the word of God gets in my heart is just by studying the scripture, pouring over it, reading it, and then teaching it to somebody else, and somehow it gets in there. And when life comes crashing down, you got to have it, okay, it's got to be there for you. You've got to know that God's working all things together for the good. For, that those, for those who love God and call, are called according to His purposes. You've got to know these passages. You've got to know verse 34 of Jeremiah 31. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Because guess what? You're going to sin. You're going to fall flat on your face. And you're going to need that verse to pick you up. Right? That's how you get from hopeless to hopeful. One way... The gospel. The gospel. May it be in all of our hearts. Ready access. Let's pray. Father, thank you.